Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, Southside Sox fans, this is Keelan Ballou, and I'm here with a special guest for our second episode of Explain It Like I'm Five. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about something you likely don't miss, but have probably not forgotten about and wish you have forgotten about the MLB lockout. So I'm super excited today to have a special guest with me. Um, you may have heard from him from Twitter. It's Eugene Friedman, who's currently a union lawyer and writer um, for baseball labor relations. Uh, that's just his hobby, but during the day, he's special counsel to the president at the National Air Traffic Controllers Association. And if you want to follow him on Twitter, you can find him at Eugene, that's E-U-G-E-N-E, Friedman, F-R-E-E-D-M-A-N. And you know, you're going to see a lot of really good labor takes and other thoughts about Prince, which we'll get into a little later. Um, but thanks for joining me today, Eugene. How are you doing? Good. Thanks, Keelan. Uh, thanks for having me on your podcast. Yeah. And thank you for coming. So um, we talked a little bit before uh, we hopped on the recording, but I know you were kind of talking about the thing that brought us both here, which is baseball. So I'm kind of interested to learn first and foremost, you know, how you became a baseball fan, who you are a fan of, and and how baseball is a factor in your world. So um, I guess I started out um, being a baseball fan without realizing that I was a baseball fan. My cousin was the um, trainer for the uh, Jackson Mets when I was a kid, um, and he got me a jersey. where he was actually the, the trainer and traveling secretary at the time. 
Um, and he moved up in the minors to AAA, which was the Tidewater Tides, um, and was um, uh, he was on the same teams in AA and AAA. Well, I guess he wasn't on the team to the extent that they were uh, with Mookie Wilson, Wally Backman, and Hubie Brooks, among other uh, future Mets and uh, other future major leaguers. Uh, and then he got called up to the Mets, uh, I think it was in 1981. Uh, when a lot of those guys also broke in. And um, I was seven at the time. And um, I went to uh, a lot of Mets games uh, and sat in the family section uh, with my grandparents, great aunt and uncle, um, sometimes my parents, and then um, went with, you know, friends and family to, to other games as well. Um, so I, I grew up a Mets fan. Uh, but I had to pick an American League team, and so I picked the Orioles um, because Eddie Murray, um, I just thought he looked really cool on his baseball cards, uh, and he was, so he, he became my favorite non-Mets player, uh, and then in, in 1985, we moved down to the D.C. suburbs uh, in Maryland, uh, and so uh, my Orioles fandom actually paid off being close to the Orioles, um, and um, I, I became a pretty big Orioles fan, although they did trade Eddie Murray away a couple of years after I arrived. So that that kind of sucked. Um, and they were also uh, really terrible back then. Uh, but we did get to go to a lot of games when I was in high school. Uh, they had, I think it was four dollar student tickets. Uh, so once we got our driver's licenses, we we would drive up to to games and uh, sit in the uh, bleachers uh, for Orioles games. And they made you sit behind, it was like the second section of bleachers uh, were, were for student tickets and, and some other uh, lower price seats. And they wouldn't let you move up, but uh, we moved up, you know, usually after the fifth or sixth inning when they were losing five to nothing and everybody else would leave. I mean, they had to assume that's what was gonna happen with students. <laughs> right, especially with like 16 year old kids right that like there's no way you can keep them trapped in the worst seats in the house yeah exactly <laughs> they, they knew um that's awesome so have you kind of stayed a fan of both you know this so this i actually um i went to college in new york um and it, it was upstate but um you know it was still a very met yankees driven um uh group of people in college and I actually didn't like the Mets fans there. Um, so for the most part, obviously I have a bunch of friends who are Mets fans, but um, I decided that I didn't want to associate with the Mets fans. So I, I <laughs> kind of dropped the Mets. Um, and uh, we, we a, a bunch of us uh, founded an uh, American League only uh, rotisserie league in 1994 and so Whoa. I really followed the American League really closely and not really followed the National League very much for the last probably 25 years. That's awesome. That's very cool. So you were doing that in 1994 and I think um, before you and I were able to talk you mentioned that you got to, to travel recently for a roto league or for, for a fantasy draft is that how was that? Yeah, so um, that league that, that we started um, 
uh, at Cornell University in 1994, we've stayed together. There have been a few people in and out, but um, they're always pretty much connected with us, uh, even if uh, they didn't go to, to school with us, all of us at the same time. Uh, and we still draft together. We've been drafting probably for the last dozen years in Manhattan. Uh, so the last two years, we, we had to do Zoom drafts, which were pretty terrible. Um, and, you know, obviously couldn't get together. Uh, but this year we got back together for the first time in three years. So it was awesome just seeing people that I've known for almost 30 years and, um, you know, that, that I haven't seen in so long. Um, so it was really cool. Uh, I hope my team is good. <laughs> uh, I haven't had, had good teams the past couple of years. So I'm, I'm looking forward to a, uh, a strong season. That's awesome. Is there anybody you're either most excited about or most surprised so far that you, you picked up? Well, um, Luis Arise somehow yeah. has become one of my favorite players. Um, and um, I think I paid $13 for him in our auction. Wow. Um, you know, he's obviously high average, low power, low steals. So he has limited value but I think just by his high average and the fact that he's flexible uh qualifying at second third and outfield um he's and he's very I, I just like to watch him play I watch I you know I, I'm sure most of your listeners um do this too but you know on MLB TV or or extra innings I watch so many different American league games and I've mm -hmm. watched him a lot for the past three years. And I just like the way he plays. I think he's just a really exciting player. Um, so I'm happy to have him on my team. Yeah, that is exciting. Cool. Um, well, good luck to you on that. And um, I guess kind of transitioning into that, you know, you mentioned the other part of part of your life in, in the intro, we talked about the other part of your life, um, which is, you know, that you are, actively working as a lawyer um, for a union, you're a union lawyer, um, correct me if I'm saying that wrong. And um, I'm just kind of curious about that path and how you, how you went down that road. Sure, yeah. Um, I don't know that, that my path was, was significantly different than others historically, but um, you know, I think, you know, currently there are very few union members in this country. I mean, the private sector uh, labor density is under 10%. Uh, so not a lot of people grow up in union households, uh, but I did. Uh, so my father was a uh, teacher. He actually taught at a community college, but they were organized um, by the American Federation of Teachers. And he was a local uh, shop steward, um, he was elected by his campus. Uh, so, you know, he was always involved in his union when I was growing up. My grandfather on um, the other side of the family, uh, who um, passed away last year at 98, uh, was a 65-year member of the United Association of Plumbers. Um, he did uh, commercial construction uh, and residential construction. Uh, and then ultimately went into uh, working at a sewage disposal plant, uh, wow. which literally uh, worked knee deep in shit. Um, 
<laughs> and I assume on a podcast, that's okay to say. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, he, he was a plumber his whole life, um, you know, and my aunt um, worked at the credit union uh, at John F. Kennedy Airport, New York, uh, JFK, uh, where um, when the controllers went on strike, when the Patco strike happened in 1981, um, my grandfather aunt and I went out on the picket line. So I mentioned 1981 uh, as as a big year for me when I was seven in baseball. It was also a big year for me because I was on on the picket line uh, at JFK. Uh, unfortunately, all of those controllers um, were fired. My aunt was uh, laid off from her job uh, and and went to work at another credit union. Um, but, um, you know, that, that union uh, spirit um, kind of stuck with me. Um, I supported my teachers uh, in high school. Um, ultimately, I guess I put one intermediate phase in. You know, I mentioned that I moved down to Maryland. Uh, my father actually went to work for the Bricklayers Union, uh, mm-hmm. doing international affairs for them. Um, and uh, which I guess is a little strange for unions, but it was during the height of the Cold War and a lot of unions were supporting uh, the solidarity movement in Poland, Mm -hmm. uh, as well as um, other independent free trade unions in the other Soviet satellite states, uh, as well as the Soviet Union. Uh, Mm -hmm. So he he did a lot of work with those unions, uh, helping to uh, ultimately overthrow communism. Um, and uh, did other things like set up uh, job training programs in South Africa, Egypt uh, for uh, building trades uh, and construction workers. My mother went on to work uh, at the American Federation of Teachers. So um, so I've got a lot of labor history. Uh, my great-grandmother actually was also a labor union member. She was in the International Ladies Garment Workers Union. Um, the look for the union label song uh, was from her union. Uh, so I've got a lot of union history uh, in my family. And when I was in high school, the teachers were working to rule because the county council um, basically invalidated their pay raise that they had negotiated. Um, and so um, as a student, I was, I was applying for college at the time and I circulated a petition supporting the, the teachers um, saying we understand why they're not writing college recommendations. They shouldn't have to work for free in the evenings to do this, especially when their pay raise was denied them. Um, And so um, I kind of did my own labor, uh, I guess, uh, auxiliary support, uh, and then uh, went to college to major in industrial and labor relations. Uh, went to law school because I wanted to negotiate uh, collective bargaining agreements. Uh, and I was told there are two ways to do that. One is to go to law school and the other is to become a union member, then to become a local leader, then become, you know, move up uh, in the union movement. Uh, and then maybe you'll be appointed to a bargaining team. So I said, well, I think I can go to law school. That'll be easier. Um, so in law school, I clerked at the National Labor Relations Board. Um, instead of going to class one semester, I just went there every day, um, which if, if you're considering law school for anyone listening, it's 
at least 25 years ago, it was miserable. Um, <laughs> and most people are looking for a way out. My way out was to do a full-time government clerkship uh, for credit. Um, so I did that, got a job uh, at a legal publishing company uh, that was writing about arbitration uh, decisions and um, NLRB cases uh, and happened to uh, my first week, there was a union meeting. I went to the meeting and uh, I, was, I became a member of the, the newspaper guild, uh, which is now called the News Guild. Um, not too many papers left anymore, unfortunately. Uh, and at that meeting, they said, uh, is anyone interested in being on the contract negotiating team? And I raised my hand. Uh, and they said, who are you? I said, well, I just started last week. Is it a problem? And they said, no, that's, that's fine. They didn't have enough volunteers. So I got on the contract team. Um, so, nice. uh, <laughs> you know, sometimes all it takes is volunteering. Um, and then uh, from there, um, I got a job full-time working at a, at a union representing federal employees. Um, and um, 17 years ago, um, I interviewed uh, at NATCA, the National Air Traffic Controllers Association. Uh, most of our members are air traffic controllers uh, and federal employees, although we do represent some uh, controllers in private towers. Um, and, um, you know, uh, with my uh, PATCO background, uh, walking that picket line, um, and my, my other experience, uh, I think it wound up being a perfect fit for me. Um, and I, I've really enjoyed it. I've negotiated, um, I think about 10 contracts, um, collective bargaining agreements, awesome. uh, in, in my experience, um, both, um, for NACA's members, but also, uh, as a member of NACA's management with our internal staff union. So I, I've seen both sides of the table, um, albeit, uh, not with an employer that would lock out its employees. Yeah, <laughs> which is very interesting. And I do know, um, I'm sure some folks here uh, in Chicago, obviously with the amount of airports we have in the area, will be very happy to know that, um, you know, you're on their side as well. So, yeah. Um, so we're going to take a quick commercial break. And then I do want to jump into a group that might lock people out <laughs> that you have come to know well over the past year. So we will be right back to hear more about how uh, Eugene feels about the lockout. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, we are back here. And Eugene, you were last talking about your day job. However, you've spent quite a bit of time over the last few months talking about the MLB lockout. So I definitely want to talk with you a little about that. And, you know, 
like I've like mentioned to you, the point of this podcast is to kind of talk about how to understand kind of potentially difficult topics that can get confusing more on a level where somebody who's not a lawyer or who doesn't understand a lot about unions or collective bargaining um, can understand. So I would kind of love even just like an overview from you about what the hell happened in the 2021-2022 MLB lockout. Yeah, so um, the the lockout, and and I'll try to do this kind of chronologically, I think. Um, the, the lockout happened um, in December, but there were a lot of things leading up to it that I think are, are relevant. And so some of them are going back even two uh, CBAs ago. Um, the Players Association um, probably didn't realize the rate of revenue increases that were about to occur in Major League Baseball. A uh, combination of things between streaming, um, between regional sports networks deals increasing considerably, uh, even the national TV contracts going uh, increasing considerably uh, over the last decade or so. Um, and those things happened um, with revenues, but on the player side of things, salaries have not kept up with revenues. Uh, and part of that was that the uh, competitive balance tax, which used to be referred to as the luxury tax, uh, was um, increasing at a very low rate. Uh, there were several years where I think it was going up either zero or one percent, um, even though revenues in that time frame were growing by leaps and bounds, maybe as much as 10 percent a year. Wow. And so the players started seeing a lesser and lesser share of the revenues uh, going to them. Um, and so th that's kind of happened uh, two CBAs in a row. Um, and so the, the Players Association a couple of years ago brought in a new um, labor lawyer uh, mm -hmm. who had formerly worked with Don Fear, who used to be uh, Major League Baseball Players Association Executive Director for a, a couple decades, uh, he went on to work at the National Hockey League Players Association and Bruce Meyer worked with him there. Mm -hmm. uh, Don Fear recommended Bruce Meyer to come to MLBPA. Uh, they hired him um, to have somebody in the room uh, who had a little more experience perhaps than uh, the people who had negotiated the last couple of contracts. Uh, also, um, um, the players themselves were a little bit disgruntled. And I think that that was a big deal. Um, you know, there have been a lot of stories recently, not just about um, the, the disparity between revenue growth and player salary growth, but also um, minor league salaries and working conditions and living conditions for that matter. Uh, there have been a lot of um, other things that have come up, such as uh, the pandemic, uh, and over the last three years, salaries have actually declined for mm -hmm. on, on average for Major League Baseball players. Um, so all of those things played into this. But then um, during the, the restart of the 2020 season, 
Um, the commissioner's office basically tried to reduce the number of games uh, to near nothing. Um, they slow rolled the negotiations uh, with an attempt to, I believe, reduce the season down to the lowest number of games that could be considered credible. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, player salaries, uh, even though they agreed to prorate them, um, if you're being paid for 60 games instead of 162, uh, that's a significant pay cut. Um, yeah. And you know, when, when you're looking at it, I mean, I, I know that the players at the top of the scale uh, the Scherzers and uh, the Correas and uh, uh, the guys who've signed, you know, these the record um, single year a- average value contracts get mm-hmm. the news. But a, a very high percentage of the players make the major league minimum. I think it's close to 40 wow. percent. Um, and those players are also prorated. So if they're in the majors for 80 games. Uh, they get half of the minimum. Uh, the other half, they get their minor league salary. Uh, mm-hmm. And a lot of players are on that treadmill where they, they're up for a few days and then down for a week and then up again. Um, and so, you know, there, there was this real um, tangible feeling that the players wanted to do something for those players, mm-hmm. uh, for the players who were receiving the minimum for part of the season and then receiving the, the 40 man roster minimum for the rest of the season. And that's not an issue that 40 man roster minimum is not something that really came up much, but maybe I'll, I'll mention it again later when, when we talk about the resolution of the lockout. Uh, but all of that was playing in the background. Yeah. And to an extent, I think the, the ownership group realized, you know what, we don't even need a regular season. We make almost all of our money in the playoffs, at least from TV. Mm-hmm. Um, August, September, and October is when the national TV contracts pay out. Um, so, you know, this year I think it's going to be somewhere between sixty-five and seventy million per team wow. uh, on the national TV deals, and that includes all these new streaming exclusive packages, uh, which add a few million dollars per team. Uh, to, to the overall uh, TV package with Fox and TBS and ESPN. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, you have this, this vast amount of money that really comes in the pennant race in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Uh, the regional sports networks, obviously those uh, pay out throughout the season. Uh, but there's also, uh, I think Maury Brown uh, at Forbes was the one who reported this, that a lot of them have um, basically... Uh, a 28 day or 25 day clause in them that mm-hmm. says, you know, if for some reason, 25 games aren't p- paid, those aren't prorated. Those are basically a freebie that the regional sports network eats. Um, so I think major league baseball had this idea in their mind that they could get away with losing all of April and it wouldn't cost them anything. They'd still get the full regional sports network uh, monies. Uh, April is a low ticket sales month uh, mm-hmm. because kids are still in school mm-hmm. um, and the weather isn't necessarily warm throughout the country, especially in the Midwest and Northeast. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those games, um, you know, don't have the same number of fans that they get in June through August. 
um, and they're not pennant race games, so they don't get what September would otherwise have. Uh, so, you know, I think the ownership group thought, you know what, we've got nothing to lose, mm -hmm. but the players have a lot to lose in a lockout because if there are only 140 games played, they're only going to get 140 games of pay. Um, and so the players who had lost, you know, 102 games two years ago, uh, mm -hmm. really didn't want to lose more games of pay. Uh, their careers are relatively short. And as I mentioned, 40% of them uh, make, make uh, at or around the league minimum. Uh, so all of that was in play. Um, and, you know, I, I think that's really why the lockout began. Uh, and it also played out in a way that showed that management didn't really care about those April games. Because mm -hmm. as soon as the lockout was, was announced, Major League Baseball took about a month off. Okay. They didn't make a counter proposal to the union. They didn't schedule a meeting. Um, it happened to be over Christmas and New Year's, at least yeah. for part of that time. Uh, but I considered it basically a 35-day Christmas vacation that they took. Um, Must be nice. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, when, when you, you're a multi-billionaire, I guess you can afford that long a vacation. <laughs> Right. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, I think it did set the parties back in terms of the pace of negotiations. Um, and it, it definitely set the parties back in terms of the tone of negotiations because they were not negotiating in a manner that showed that both parties wanted to reach agreement. Uh, management definitely didn't seem to care about reaching agreement, at least in short order. Yeah. Yeah. And um, that's interesting. So from the beginning, I guess, when, when the lockout began, did you, just from your experience or thing, anything you heard, did you think it was like suspicious that they weren't doing anything right away? Or is that kind of in line with what you expected to happen? I'm curious about your take on that. So uh, a lockout is uh, a unilateral action by management. Um, it's, you know, the, the union has nothing to do with the lockout. Um, and normally, um, and, and I, I, I would say normally in the sense that uh, it's not unusual for something different to happen, but there are basically two types of lockouts. One is a defensive lockout where management makes a decision uh, to lock out the, the unionized workforce uh, because they're, they want to control the timing of a work stoppage. They expect the union to strike uh, because the union has taken steps to prepare for a strike. Perhaps they've taken a strike vote. Uh, perhaps they've built up a big strike fund and they've always struck in, in previous negotiations. Um, that really hadn't happened here before. Um, additionally, uh, the other option is kind of a, a, an aggressive lockout uh, where management says, uh, accept our offer or you're not allowed to come to work. Uh, but that to an extent didn't happen here either because management didn't even make a proposal that the union had to accept or reject. Uh, it basically said, we're locking you out and we're ignoring you. Um, and at the time uh, leading up to the lockout, there were a lot of uh, free agent signings. And a lot of them were pretty lucrative uh, agreements, 
particularly with the Mets. The Mets made a lot of big splashy moves, not just with free agents, but re-signing uh, some of their, their own players like Francisco Lindor. Um, and I think because um, of the aggressive nature of the Mets' new ownership, uh, as well as the positioning of the Dodgers, um, who, who also have spent a lot in recent years compared relative to the other teams. Um, management initiated the lockout to lock them out more than to lock out the players. Um, I think what happened was um, the, the uh, competitive balance tax expired at the end of the regular season last year. Uh, it's sunset on its own. Normally, uh, collective bargaining agreement, uh, mandatory terms and conditions. And I don't want to go too deep into the weeds, but um, negotiations over wages, hours, uh, and other conditions of employment are considered mandatory. Mm -hmm. um, and those things, if you have an existing CBA that expires, those remain in full force and effect. So the entirety of the collective bargaining agreement would remain in effect um, on things like free agency, uh, the draft, um, you know, meal money when, when players are traveling, hotel money, uh, when they have to report to spring training, the grievance procedure, all of those things would remain in full force and effect. However, the one thing that expired on its own was the competitive balance tax. And so I think the commissioner's office said to the other owners, or said to all the owners, including uh, the, the Dodgers group and Steve Cohen, um, we need to initiate this lockout so that things don't go haywire without a competitive balance tax. Um, and so they locked out their fellow owners from signing free agents. Uh, and then once, the, you know, once they'd frozen out their own ownership, then they finally came around and said, now we have to negotiate something new. Uh, but they were not going to let um, a free agent class sign in the absence of a competitive balance tax. Um, and so I think, you know, the Players Association knew that it, it had um, the flexibility of no CBT, uh, but they also knew that they weren't going to end uh, the lockout without agreeing to one because management would never move forward without a CBT. Mm -hmm. That's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's really interesting. And I, you, you, know, you touched on the, this, that they don't really lose anything from not doing any of this um, because of the revenues, which is very interesting. Um, is there you know, a point where and I may be skipping ahead a few steps. Is there a point where the MLB's hand was forced or management's hand was forced on anything um, to reconcile with that? Or what kind of started the process to turn around? I'm kind of interested in that. Yeah, so, you know, there were a lot of things on the table, um, you know, and, and, the interesting thing, at least from my perspective, and it may not be interesting to anyone who's not a practitioner uh, in this field, is that they didn't uh, tentatively agree on uh, issues subject by subject. They did what, what's referred to as a grand bargain. 
so every time that they made a proposal back and forth, it basically contained everything in the CBA. And uh, the other party would then take that, analyze it, and then respond with another grand proposal covering everything in the CBA. Mm-hmm. So there were a lot of leaks throughout this process. And the leaks normally came through uh, reporters who work for Major League Baseball Network. Um, and you know they, they would basically say, hey, the parties just agreed to expanded playoffs. Well, mm-hmm. actually the parties didn't agree to expanded playoffs. What happened was the Players Association made a proposal that included expanded playoffs. Um, and so they were agreeing to a concept of it, but they were agreeing to a concept not in a vacuum, just on that one subject, but um, uh, you know, included in that was an increase to the CBT, an increase to the minimum salary, an increase uh, to the uh, um, eligibility for arbitration, uh, an earlier free agency. So it was part of this grand package, but every time the Players Association made a proposal like that, um, somebody uh, who, who was kind of an inside reporter, um, which I think is a more accurate term than an MLB insider, um, an inside reporter, someone who works in-house for Major League Baseball would mm-hmm. say, the players agreed to this thing that management really wants. Oh my gosh. And, and so, you know, it created expectations yeah. among, uh, among others uh, you know, mostly just, you know, lay fans who are, who are just, you know, really excited and hopeful for a deal saying, oh, well, if they've got a deal on expanded playoffs and they've got a deal on, um, you know, patches with, with logos and, and advertising on them and they've, they've got a, a deal on these other things, why can't they just agree on the competitive balance tax and just mm-hmm. be done with it? Well, these were all little strings that that both sides were pulling on. And each time a proposal went back and forth, you know, they would they would pull on one and maybe leave a little slack in another. But management's proposals for for a long time really weren't moving the needle on any of the things that the players said they wanted, particularly um, p- paying uh, newer players, less tenured players, earlier in their careers, uh, which was, uh, uh, I think the Players Association had said that that was their primary interest. Mm -hmm. Uh, The secondary interest was uh, making the game more competitive, uh, not having tanking. Uh, And then the third thing they talked about was um, um, making free agency better because over the past few years, you know, the non-stars in free agency have been uh, basically disregarded uh, and, yeah. and not given the contracts that they believe that they should have gotten. Um, so the baseball's middle class was disappearing. Uh, yeah. So th- I think management was not addressing those things, those three things that that the Players Association wanted. Um, ultimately, the second one that I identified, uh, w- which was, you know, eliminate tanking um, or, or make teams more competitive, um, I think that kind of fell by the wayside. It became one of those things that, um, you know, they came up with some, I would say, unique and interesting ideas, um, but they really just played around the fringes. They weren't things that would make substantive change. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the substantive proposals that the Players Association made several times, uh, but management kept saying it was not going to even respond to, was to change the formulas to distribute um, revenue sharing mm -hmm. um, and not allow teams to receive revenue sharing or receive as much revenue sharing if they weren't putting that money back into the into player salaries. Um, and that management said was non-starter. They weren't going to negotiate it. They weren't going to discuss it. Um, they liked the way the formula is now. Mm -hmm. um, it was in the last uh, two CBAs. Uh, and ultimately, the Players Association dropped that aspect of its proposal. And instead, they tinkered with the draft lottery, um, you know, the, the, um, uh, the, the different rules to, to make uh, teams more uh, earlier uh, promote their best prospects, uh, which theoretically would make them more competitive uh, as well. Um, and, and to an extent, you've seen that, but all with teams that potentially have a, a playoff chance this year, Julio Rodriguez, Spencer Torkelson, um, yeah. And, uh, you know, those those players who might have otherwise spent, you know, six weeks or even four weeks in the minors to start the season in, in previous years, they're starting the season in the majors. So that's that's a big positive, um, not just for for those players, but also for those teams and their fans, uh, because they should help this, help those teams in the standings as well. And Bobby Wood Jr., yeah, I, I, I forgot to mention him him as well. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, I think, you know, when, when it, it took, I think, some threats um, from the Players Association, they basically said, we're not going to give you expanded playoffs, unless mm -hmm. you pay us for 162 games. Um, I think that threat may have woken up management to an extent mm -hmm. because they were banking on, hey, we'll just pay them for 140. Um, we'll lose 22 games or 25 games or something like that. And, uh, you know, we'll make the same revenues, but we'll have, you know, 10% lower expenses. Uh, and the Players Association said, no, you're not getting expanded playoffs. And that was management's biggest ask. That and, and restoring the collective bargaining, or excuse me, competitive balance tax. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, with that threat, I think that actually was the, the impetus to speed up negotiations towards the end. Interesting. Yeah, because it was a point where it was like, this is never going in. And then it was like, bam, 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 a few days. And I was like, okay. So I think to your point from a fan standpoint and somebody who does not have a lot of familiarity with the inner workings with law, it was confusing. And also the fact you mentioned that there was a lot of, I don't know that misinformation is the right word, but definitely skewed information from different sources made it very, made it very difficult. Um, and I imagine especially for folks who saw it as a, I am quoting what I saw, millionaires versus billionaires issue. Um, I think it made it even more confusing. Um, so my, my next question to you is kind of, when you hear that millionaires versus billionaires thing, um, how do you feel like folks who aren't at that level, who are fans can kind of reconcile that difference between themselves 
and somebody who's a, a professional baseball player as well as owners? Well, so I guess there are a couple of things and, and I think of them, you know, in my world as management and employees. Right? So I think if you think of players as employees, that's one way to kind of lift this, hey, you know, Max Scherzer is making over $40 million this year. Um, yes. and driving up, driving up in his Porsche, <laughs> Porsche right. excuse me. I don't yes. know cars. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't either. Um, <laughs> so, um, <laughs> um, you know, it, it's, yes, he has an expensive car, but he also came in a car. Um, he didn't come in a private jet. Mm -hmm. He didn't come in a helicopter, which almost every one of the owners owns their own private jet. And sometimes it's a 737. I mean, it's not, it's not just a, you know, a, a normal corporate jet that, that you might think of with 22 seats on it. Mm -hmm. It's an actual, uh, you know, commercial airliner jet uh, that, that you would fly, um, you know, from Chicago to, to Miami uh, on American, right? right? That, that, that plane is going to be flying four or five people in, you know, that owner's family on vacation. Um, so, you know, these people who are owners of teams are on a completely different level um, from even the wealthiest of, of players. But then, as I mentioned, 40% of the players make that league minimum. Um, and they don't make the full league minimum. So, if, if they're going to, you know, in, in the prior CBA, uh, the league minimum was $500,000. And you might think, man, I would, I would love to make $500,000. I, I think we all would. Um, yes. That, that's a <laughs> lot of money in a year. But you also have to realize that, that those, those players at that level also spent six or eight years in the minor leagues making between $8,000 and $20,000. Um, because that's what minor leaguers make. And they may only have one partial season in the major leagues. So instead of making that 500,000 minimum, they're making 250,000. And that's really 250,000 for 10 years of work because that's, that's all they're going to make in their career. And then they're going to retire because, or they're going to go back to the minors for another couple of years. And then they're going to, have to make a second job at, for their themselves, sometimes at the age of like 25, 26, yeah. um, you know, and, and sometimes even older, um, you know, where they basically have to start over because maybe they didn't go to college. Maybe they, they didn't even take high school seriously because they were a phenomenal athlete and they knew they were going to be a professional. But it's mm -hmm. such a small percentage of players who make this, the, the, make it to free agency uh, mm -hmm. where you really make money. Uh, you have to have six years in the majors to get to free agency, not six years in the career. So you might be 12 years into your career before you hit free agency and actually start making lots and lots of money. And, and you know, with regard to Max Scherzer and his car, he's probably one of the 10 greatest pitchers of all time. And yeah. I, I know I'm going down a, a line uh, that Joe Sheehan talks about a lot, which is the current players are the greatest players ever. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, each generation, there's, there's an additional ability level that adds. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Scherzer has been the best pitcher of this generation after Clayton Kershaw. Um, and, you know, he's, he's put up some incredible seasons at a time when, you know, hitting is still dominating the game. Not quite as much as during the the PED era, but um, he's been you know head and shoulders above his peers, um, and you know people at the top of any entertainment profession are going to make that kind of money. Um, you know, think of them also as entertainers. Nobody complains uh, when you know Robert Downey Jr. Uh, makes uh, uh, whatever he made off of the Avengers. We don't even know how much he made. Yeah. Um, but he was, he was the star and he got a a lion's share of the money, um, you know, compared to his peers, uh, and, and nobody cares how much he made because they enjoyed watching the product. And it's the same with Max Scherzer. He is the product. He is the reason that you watch the game. You're not watching the game to watch, um, you know, um, Steve Cohen, um, right. <laughs> you know, as entertaining as his tweets might be, um, you know, whether it's him or somebody else, it doesn't matter as long as they're supporting the team, you're fine with them, right? Well, mm-hmm. Scherzer, when he is on, you're watching the game to watch him. Um, and so I think, you know, you, you have to look at it, uh, I would hope, through that lens. Um, and, and also through that lens of, you know, the the players are not all Max Scherzer. He is right. the top tenth of the top one percent. Um, you know, most most pitchers are riding that train up and down to AAA, and you know they, you know, if they get three years or three partial years, uh, that's their career. Um, and so, I, I think you know, compared to the revenues that are generated. And the value that they bring to that, um, that their salaries are, are warranted and really shouldn't be a consideration for the, for the average fan. Yeah, that's, that's good to know. Yeah, I definitely, especially towards the, towards the end, I think when people were anxious and it was getting closer and closer, I mean, we, I think we surpassed the uh, catchers and pitchers reporting date. Um, I, I saw some people out there, some were just being kind of inflammatory, but. Right. And, you know, the, the, the other thing besides the millionaires with, and billionaires thing, um, I think the other common phrase is they're playing a kid's game. Yes. Um, and, you know, I, I, I coached my daughter's softball team uh, for the last five years. Um, the only people who come to those games are the parents of the kids at, who are playing in those games. There's no fans going to those games. So, you know, when it's a kid's game, nobody's paying to watch. No no one's even watching, right? Um, When it's Mm -hmm. the best of the best in the entire world, and you've got players from all over the world coming to play baseball in the United States, people pay to see those games. It's not a kid's game. It's a business. And people make a lot of money, not just the players, the owners make a lot of money more than any player um, for just owning a team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a very good point. And also it's ironic that <laughs> you say that because a lot of the folks I saw 
saying things like that were also folks that's like, well, out in the wild, you're saying this and the, the entire reason you are is because you want the season to start. Um, so right. obviously yeah, no, I, I want to watch these guys play. So, so I'm going to say it's a kid's game. You know, I, I, I played 30 years ago in high school. No, I, we probably had like three fans um, right. and, and we were terrible and I would not pay anything to watch myself play. Um, so, you know, saying I would play for free. Um, that's great. I play softball every weekend for free and you, and we don't even have a single fan. So <laughs> we're going to um, start paying it, you the big bucks. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's a different game. It's not, it's, it's not playing for free on the weekends with your friends. Yeah. And I even saw people mention, you know, like, Oh, I, I maybe, I guess I'll watch college ball, but there's even such a huge difference in college baseball between those players and MLB. I don't even feel like it's comparable to, to football really. Um, it's still a great, entertainment outlet but it's just the level of competition is crazy um yeah, so I thought that was absolutely. another yeah so I mean we are past this now and I know when I originally reached out to you you're like oh I didn't know like people still wanted to talk about this but it did take up such and it was very like kind of it kind of got dramatic for a, a good part of this year um and you know there's things that we saw for a while happen because of it. These, all of these injury updates come out and um, kind of these late, later than usual, at least uh, trades. And, you know, there's still a lot of free agents, but I'm kind of curious now, like, I mean, this, to me, this was like, as a fan, I perceived it as a, a battle rather than, an entire war like this isn't the last time this is going to happen and it sounds like it ended but there may not there's still things that might have to be dealt with down the road um so i'm kind of curious for you um, and from your standpoint and experience or, or things you've heard you know in the future what can we expect to maybe happen because of this lockout this agreement um or, or things that weren't even discussed or solved um in this agreement so one thing um, that I think everybody should keep an eye on is the international player draft. Um, that was something that they came, management kept coming back with, well, give me one extra thing. That was something they kept coming back to. Um, and so they, at the last minute, they brought up the international players draft. It may have been something that they, they proposed early on, but kind of let it wither on the vine um and and then it became a must-have at the end the parties agreed to defer that and link it to uh free agent uh draft pick compensation uh so that's something that's going to be coming up over the next i think it's six months that the parties still have to negotiate um but i also think that just we all have to be cognizant of of you know, everybody wants to know who won and who lost in these negotiations. And I think it's too soon to see that. I think that both parties met some of their objectives, but not all of them. Uh, the management objectives of uh, uh, restoring a competitive balance tax happened, but probably at a slightly higher level than they were looking for. Uh, they wanted expanded playoffs, but they didn't get 
them expanded exactly at, at the level they wanted. Uh, so I think those, uh, well, I know that the expanded playoffs will probably come up at, you know, at the end of this CBA. Uh, it'll be another management ask. Um, I think the Players Association wants to see how free agency plays out under this new agreement. Mm -hmm. um, I think they want to see how uh, the newly established pool of money uh, to players who are not yet arbitration eligible uh, to see how well that's received by their members, uh, because that will definitely pay players earlier in their careers, especially those who have uh, big seasons. Um, I think the, the other, um, you know, key aspect is will the league minimum salary, uh, keep up with inflation? Uh, there are escalators. It's not just going to be one number for five years. It's going to go up, uh, in steps over the course of the, the CBA. Uh, so will that keep up with inflation? Uh, I think the players association, you know, is, is going to monitor that pretty closely, uh, and also, uh, and I mentioned this before, they did increase the salaries for players on the forty-man um, roster. Mm -hmm. So those are the players who are not on the major league roster, but they're they're um, on on the roster in AAA, but signed to a major league contract. And and those players will see a raise also. Um, you know, I, I've seen it reported that it might be as much as as uh, twenty-five to 40%, but I don't remember seeing the exact figure. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's important as well because those players um, are making significantly less. I think they were making uh, between 40 and $80,000 in the last CBA. Mm -hmm. uh, and for some reason, I think I saw something about 60,000 to 110, somewhere in that ballpark. Wow. Um, and so, you know, that's what a AAA player on a 40-man roster is going to make. Mm -hmm. A AAA player who's not on a 40-man roster is probably making about twenty dollars to $22,000. Um, so something to, to watch out for uh, is whether there's any traction to organizing minor league players um, and whether the Major League Baseball, excuse me, Major League Baseball Players Association provides any seed money or support for organizing those minor league players. Interesting. And I'm glad you brought that up because I was actually going to ask about that, um, about minor leaguers and them organizing. Um, in the past, has that, I know it, it came up a lot this year. There were a lot of folks who, one, didn't understand, they didn't understand um, minor league players weren't a part of the MLBPA. Um, so, do you, you know, do you see traction or have you heard of any traction on that? Um, do you know any history behind that of why they haven't been, um, haven't been able to do that? Yeah, so um, under the National Labor Relations Act, bargaining units are specifically certified for groups of employees. Um, and there's not, uh, uh, and well, there's not the appropriate unit under the law, you know, where where they define what the bargaining unit is. There, it has to be an appropriate unit. So there's a wide, uh, okay. wide possibility of what is appropriate, and it's based on what's called the community of interest standard. 
Um, and the, the community of interest is basically employees who share similar work environments and working conditions. Um, it, it can include other things like location, um, things like that, uh, where they have a, a combined bargaining unit for all 30 Major League Baseball franchises. Uh, and it includes those, those players on the 40-man roster uh, mm -hmm. because it's believed that they have a community of interest, or at least it, it did when they were first certified. Mm -hmm. um, the, the minor leaguers have not, uh, there, there are a couple ways to become uh, certified. One is to be voluntarily recognized by your employer. Um, that's very rare. Uh, most employers would rather hire really high-priced anti-union uh, um, campaigners to work against the union than actually just recognize the union and negotiate in good faith. Uh, you see that going on right now with Amazon in particular. Mm -hmm. um, so Major League Baseball, who now basically owns and controls the minor leagues, is not going to voluntarily recognize a union representing minor leaguers. Uh, the other is, uh, one other that's even more rare uh, is a strike for recognition, where the players or, or the employees would say, we're not working until you recognize our union. Um, that's not going to happen in the minor leagues. I can't see that happening. Uh, it, it rarely happens in, in the modern uh, world anyway. Um, it happened a lot in the 30s and 40s. Um, even through maybe the 70s, but it, it just doesn't happen anymore. Um, and then the other is to uh, fill out a petition, uh, have members uh, or, or bargaining unit employees uh, sign cards uh, or, or a petition saying that they want a union, um, present that to the employer uh, or file it with the National Labor Relations Board and request an election. Um, and like I said, the, the um, the, the standard is community of interest. So mm -hmm. theoretically, and I would expect baseball to do this, is to argue that, oh, the community of interest being petitioned for is too broad or too narrow, and then they would try to fight it. Uh, and that could take a really long time at the National Labor Relations Board through the administrative process. Um, but, um, you know, just as an example, if, if, a group organized all of AAA mm -hmm. uh, and made a petition for them. Uh, Major League Baseball would say, um, well, we don't believe AAA is an appropriate unit. It should be all of the minor leagues. And therefore, your showing of interest, you have to have 30% showing of interest uh, at a minimum, uh, is insufficient because you haven't had anyone in AA or, or single A or rookie ball sign cards, uh, uh, and therefore it should be thrown out. Or uh, in the inverse, let's say a, an individual team petitioned, uh, they would say, no, that team is, in, is not an appropriate unit. It has to be the full league, uh, or it has to be all of the minors. So I think there would be a, there's a lot of procedural difficulties with it um, mm -hmm. that I think any of the management tactics that's normally employed in an organizing campaign um, would make it even more complicated uh, because if they were to delay the election for six months or longer, excuse me, they could then argue, well, 
the showing is no longer valid because the players have all changed. The employees have all changed hmm. here in high A since the petition was filed. Uh, there are new employees here now and they've never asked for a union. Uh, the employees who, who, you've, who, who did ask for a union, they're now all up in double A. So it doesn't qualify for this uh, high A ball uh, union anymore. Um, and so the, the cyclical nature and the fact that employees come in and out of the, the proposed bargaining unit often and regularly uh, makes it more complicated. Um, I think it would take a lot of money and a lot of uh, organizing effort uh, to, uh, to get a, a petition through the board's process uh, mm-hmm. and even get to an election. And then, of course, if if they can't reach a contract in the first year, management can seek to decertify the union. So um, that's another big hurdle that happens in organizing drives, not just getting to an election and winning the election because they'll, they'll hammer the employees with captive audience meetings, telling them how terrible the union is, how it's mm-hmm. just going to take their money, that it's gonna, you know, that, that it's not actually on working for them, it's actually working for itself. Yeah. Um, things like that. Um, and look, you're, you're going to be in the majors soon. You're going to be making all this money. Why would you want to pay, you know, 2% of your salary to this union that's not going to even be representing you in a year? Um, so there's going to, you know, there's going to be a lot of that anti-union campaigning going on. Um, and, you know, once they get through that election, if they, if they ultimately prevail in the election, there might be challenges to some ballots. That'll take a little more time. And then they actually have to get down and negotiate a CBA. Um, and they have a year basically to negotiate that. Um, so it, it's very complicated. It, it, you know, not as easy as people think. Yeah. Players Association can't just say, hey, we represent them too. Um, and you know, I think also from that perspective, uh, you know, people, people did ask me, well, why don't they just propose minor league salaries? Uh, they could have. They could have made a proposal for minor league salaries, but management could have just said no. Um, I mentioned earlier uh, mandatory subjects of bargaining. There are also permissive subjects of bargaining. And one of them is negotiating over the working conditions of employees outside the bargaining unit. Uh, so, for example, in, in a lot of um, union settings, um, they'll say, They'll negotiate, um, you know, staffing levels of management as well. They'll say, you know, the, the ratio of, of employees to managers is, uh, or mat, uh, employees to supervisors is um, 10 employees for every one supervisor. So they're negotiating basically staffing levels of, of supervisors. Um, if management were to agree to that, if both parties agree, then it can be included in the CBA. But the union could not assist, insist to impasse over um, negotiated terms for a group outside of their own bargaining unit. And the same would apply here. You couldn't say, hey, we want to negotiate the per diem for minor leaguers um, to be $50 per day while on travel. Management could just say no, and the union couldn't really take it any further. It couldn't insist to impasse over it. Uh, it couldn't uh, engage in in a protected strike 
over negotiating something outside their own bargaining unit. So there, there are a lot of restrictions in the law. Labor law mm-hmm. in particular is very restrictive. It, it, it almost is, is the inverse of what it should be. It prevents employees from being represented and from, from representing themselves um, more than it does sometimes uh, enhance the collective bargaining process. Uh, mm-hmm. But those of us who've done it a long time kind of have become familiar and used to uh, all the drawbacks to the current law. Yeah, that's super interesting. And I, I mean, through this whole process, I realized I know so little um, about unions and then all the laws around it. And then, I mean, just it was so easy to see news about things and just not know what's real and why the implications of different things. So I am certainly glad that, you know, we have folks like you that have the knowledge and are able to dive into that. Um, Yeah, and I guess just kind of thinking about in the future what you would hope to see from it, like any kind of positive things you'd like to see that maybe they aren't realistic or they are, or is there anything you're kind of hoping for in specific? Well, I mean, one thing that I, I hope that the parties can do um, is start working towards interest-based bargaining, um, where they they lay out their interests as opposed to their positions. Mm-hmm. And instead of trading proposals, they do more brainstorming of solutions to their their mutual problems that they've identified. Yeah, and I, I know that, that that this bargaining historically has been very positional, very adversarial, um, but it's not the only model. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of uh, more mature processes uh, involve that interest-based style. Um, and I think it, it brings a lot to the to the parties when they when they see things as looking for a um, Mm win-win in negotiations instead of always looking to beat the other side. Um, And unfortunately, I think, um, and and George Cohen, who who was a incredible uh, labor lawyer is now retired. Um, Mm -hmm. He represented um, among others, including the auto workers and the steel workers, uh, but he, he represented uh, the NBA players in the 70s. Um, he had a picture on his desk um, uh, with him with uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, um, <laughs> which was just incredible. Uh, and uh, he, he also um, represented uh, the, the baseball players in the case that went before uh, Judge, or then Judge Sotomayor, now Justice Sotomayor, that ended the uh, unfair labor practice strike in 1995. He he told me um, that you know these negotiations in sports are really about egos to an extent uh, mm-hmm. more than they're more than they're about issues uh, because the owners are so rich that they have people around them who are afraid to say no to them. Uh, they control everything in their own lives uh, because they're so wealthy. And then on the other side of things, you have these players who are the most competitive people in the world. They're actually trained not to lose. Like that's their job. Don't lose. You must win. 
and so you have this clash of people who nobody says no to and people who <laughs> refuse to lose. Yeah. And so it, it becomes very positional and very win-loss oriented. Um, and maybe because of that, you know, they can't break that cycle. Um, but it's not the only model. And, you know, I hope that the parties recognize that and can try to work a little more collaboratively uh, to find mutual solutions, especially uh, avoiding um, lockouts in the future. But I, I am afraid that management has kind of figured out its, its new model. And, you know, when we get to the next CBA negotiations, we'll see a repeat of this one in terms of a lockout at the time of expiration. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of what I was wondering too, if this is something that, you know, we could expect to see again in the future or because it, even though it ended, it didn't feel like the end per se. I guess it's never the end, but no, definitely- it's, it's, a, it's a relationship. I mean, it's, it's not like buying a car where you buy the car and then you're done with that dealer potentially forever. When you're in a collective bargaining agreement, it's an ongoing relationship. You can't leave the other person. Even in a marriage, you can get a divorce, but you can't say, oh, we're not working for you anymore. Yeah. Or, or we're not having employees anymore, it, especially in this situation where it's so lucrative for everybody. Yeah, yeah. That's a really good point too. And the part about the egos is fascinating. Um, it's one of those things that's like, oh, <laughs> this is not a good situation, but... Yeah, um, there are definitely things that could benefit both parties. So hopefully, I'm a dreamer. I like to think at some point <laughs> something can work out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. We'll see. Um, but I know we're kind of getting close to me keeping you on here all night. Um, so thank you so much for sharing all of this information. Um, I know I certainly learned a lot and feel more thoughtful going through all these considerations, not only in hindsight, but also moving forward in the future and just kind of a new way of thinking about these interactions between players and, and not even just that, but also I think the spotlight on players who you mentioned aren't like people who are going to be on lists of greatest players on of all time is it's large it's a large list and they those people have lives and families and they also have sacrifices that they're giving up actively by pursuing this career um so i think you explain that really well in a very digestible way and hopefully thank you the listeners will have the same feeling about that um, and before we wrap up, I know I've told you about 30 times that I did see via your Twitter that you're a big fan of Prince. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you when that started. And also, I'm very curious about the extent of your fandom. So um, I guess it, it was a combination of growing up at the right time, like in when I was young, pop music was really big. And I felt like, a, I guess with sports, you kind of have to pick a team. Mm -hmm. um, and there were people on Michael Jackson's team. There were people on Madonna's team. And I joined Prince's team early. Um, mm -hmm. So I guess probably 
1999 album in 1982 uh, was my first exposure to Prince. Uh, and then Purple Rain was obviously huge. Mm-hmm. Um, when Doves Cry became my favorite song, um, you know, when, when it came out. Um, and I guess I, I stayed with Prince, uh, was, was, you know, just a, a fan. Uh, and then I bought my first CD um, in 1988. Um, and it was Love Sexy which uh, has Prince nude on the cover. Um, So that was my first CD. And then I guess after that, I started buying all of his CDs the day they came out. Um, I don't know how I found out. I don't remember how I found out like when albums were coming out. I guess they were in newspapers and things like that. Um, As strange as that sounds, you know, now. Um, but I remember like I was traveling when Graffiti Bridge came out and I found a record store and I said to my parents, you got to drop me off here so I can buy Graffiti Bridge. Um, <laughs> and so I bought the CD the day it came out and I, in college, um, I guess it was during his war with Warner Brothers um oh yeah batman (laughs) he he came out with um he came out with an album he had to fulfill a contract with warner brothers um (laughs) and so he put out an album every like nine months um now he was always producing more albums than he could put out Mm -hmm. but and, and they always wanted to meter him they were like no, if you put out too much music, it'll oversaturate the market. You need to build up demand. You know, people want to wait for your next album. And he was just like, but I'm always making music. Um, so he, he decided, all right, I'm just going to fill out this contract by just giving them albums. And he just, he gave them like a dozen albums to fill his contract. Um, and then Warner Brothers like released them every nine months until it was over. Um, and then he started doing independent releases where he would negotiate with a distributor each year. Um, and sometimes he was putting out like triple albums or, or, or even bigger, you know, through NPG records. Um, but I'm trying to think like, I, I don't know what it was, but especially when I was in high school and college, it, like, I don't know if it was like, his music, I don't know how it touched me exactly, but it did. <laughs> and so yeah. um, I, I just stuck with him. So I went to my first concert in 93 um, and joined, he, he did a lot of direct mail at that time. Um, he had um, a catalog business Um and would sell merchandise and and have like direct releases back then uh but he couldn't release them as prints so he released two or three albums as the npg he put out special tapes for free um that he he would just release to his fan club uh and because they were for free um he he didn't get in trouble with warner brothers 
Um, so that was kind of one way to get around them was going direct to consumer. Um, and so I saw him a lot uh, in the 90s and, you know, up until his death, I went to the uh, concert for peace uh, in Baltimore uh, after the riots. Oh, that's awesome. Um, I guess it was, it was kind of still during the riots. Um, it was it was right towards the end, um, and um, so and that that was the last so, show I saw him perform. But I saw him with a lot of. I didn't never got to see him with the revolution. I've seen the revolution since his death, but um, I saw the original NPG. I saw the second NPG. Um, uh, I saw Third Eye Girl. Awesome. Um, I I guess the only band I, I never saw the Love Sexy band, which was yeah. the, the band from Sign of the Times um, and Love Sexy, and I guess um, up until '89, I guess from like '87, '86 to '89, because um, he did the Black album with them also. Um, so anyway, I, I've I've seen him a lot. Um, my, uh, I, I could probably, I'm rambling now, I guess. But, <laughs> no, um, I love it though. It's so like, <laughs> I had no idea. And I saw your thread just a few days ago about Prince and I was like, whoa, this was not what I expected, but amazing. Um, so yeah, so I, I awesome. decided, um, to, to start a thread, um, where I just went through all of his albums, uh, chronologically. Um, and I just recently did 1999. So purple rains up next. Um, awesome. And I'm going to go through all of his actual release catalog. I probably won't cover all of his, because he, he also kind of strangely, I, I guess, he pioneered music over the internet um, <laughs> because of his, you know, direct to fans distribution yeah. model. He, he did, I think it was 12, they weren't full albums, uh, but he did 12 recordings. I don't, I don't even know what to call them, where they were just downloadable from his website. And this was probably in like 2000 or 98, mm -hmm. 99. Um, and so it was, just, it, was, it was very revolutionary at the time. Um, and then he declared the internet dead um, <laughs> at some point as well, because he was like, I'm done with that model because uh, he didn't like the, the, the way uh, streaming and, and downloading was working out for, for the artists. Um, so he, he declared the internet as a distribution model to be dead. Um, and shortly before his death, he actually made a deal with uh, Dr. Dre's um, I, I think title, yeah. um, uh, music sharing um, or, or streaming service, mm -hmm. uh, so that most of his catalog went on there. Um, but he he did he 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 had a lot of problems with record companies, uh, and he, I I don't listen to her, but uh, Taylor Swift has had uh, issues recently herself, mm -hmm. and it reminded me just reading a couple of articles about. Um, 
what she was going through. It reminded me of what Prince went through with Warner Brothers, because even though he wrote, produced, composed, and, and in fact played all the instruments on most of his work, uh, and he even owned the publishing, he didn't own the masters. Mm -hmm. The masters were owned by, by Warner Brothers. So he couldn't re-release things. He couldn't remaster his own work. Um, um, and, and he couldn't even release it again without Warner Brothers permission. Um, and so, you know, he used to say, and, and I guess in the, in the early 90s when he changed his name, he, he would stencil slave on his face. Um, and he, he would say, uh, if you don't own your masters, your masters own you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, what Taylor Swift was just dealing with was very similar because her record company owned her masters and she wanted them. She wanted control over her own work. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I think... I don't know exactly how that's played out for her, but um, I think uh, 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 some kind of equity company um, wound up buying the rights to her masters from the record company uh, at one point, um, which is just absurd to -hmm. think of it as a commodity uh, instead of a work of art. Um, But, you know, that that's. That's outside the scope of my legal knowledge. Um, <laughs> but no, it but, isn't. You're right, though. It's very, it's weird to, yeah. I mean, things that came from you or a collective or owned. <laughs> owned by somebody else because you were under contract to them at the time. And, um, you know, a lot of these people signed, you know, like, like sports players. I mean, Prince signed when he was, 17 with Warner Brothers. Um, and, you know, he, didn't know, he knew enough to say, I want to have creative control, but mm-hmm. he didn't know that they were going to own all of his recordings in perpetuity and that he couldn't get them back. He ultimately got them back shortly before his death. Um, but, um, you know, the fact that he, he didn't have, even though he had the recordings, he didn't have, he didn't have creative control over them. Um, yeah. Which, which was, you know, very unfair, he felt, because he was always evolving, um, you know, in, in his his music, and he would he would change the way he performed songs in concert from the from the album version. Um, in fact, he would change them multiple times on the same tour. Um, I don't know that he ever played Kiss the same the same way twice. That's, that's um, really cool. And he he. Uh, my favorite song, Joy and Repetition, um, on his One Night Alone tour, I have several recordings from that tour, um, and he plays it differently based on who was traveling with him that, that night with the band. Um, <laughs> you know, he, he had a, a very saxophone-heavy version in, in um, Atlanta uh, because... Uh, Najee was with him that night. Um, he, the, the uh, after party album version that, that was released, it was a live uh, version. Don't know where that one was recorded, maybe Seattle or New York. Um, it's, it opens with a, just a blaring guitar solo. And 
um, when he played in uh, at the Warner Theater in Washington, D.C., um, he played it almost like the album version, um, which was the, the only time I heard him play it live. So it was uh, it was mind blowing when he started uh, playing it from the opening. Um, and, and I was it, it was strange. And I know I'm kind of going off on a tangent here, but I was sitting in. Uh, with my wife in like the fourth row, uh, we were in the NPG Music Club uh, pre-show uh, tickets. Uh, and so uh, theoretically, everybody around us was like diehard fans. But the person in front of me turned around and asked me, what song is this? As <laughs> I'm, I, I'm like tearing up listening to it. And it, anyway, that was kind of strange. But um, <laughs> yeah, that was... That was that that concert was incredible. Um, he he had a section where he he just played alone. He, he dismissed the band and played piano, um, and played. Uh, I guess it was like it was a stretch of like five or six songs, some of which he normally played on piano alone, like a door. Uh, but he he played. Um, some things he, he rarely ever played. He played Nothing Compares to You. He plays, he played I Love You, uh, um, but I Don't Trust You Anymore, which I don't think he played uh, more than like three times on that tour. Um, and I know he didn't play it in prior tours or maybe even subsequent tours. So it was just mm -hmm. incredible that he, he played that while I was there. Because that's that's a kind of obscure song, but one of my favorites um, from uh, Raven to the Joy Fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, uh, total <laughs> total geeking out on this, but um, um, no, anyway. I love it. It's awesome, and I mean, it's awesome to hear. Thank you. Thanks, people are interested, and <laughs> I like Prince <laughs> myself, so I uh, definitely did not get to experience him in the same way you did, but just even seeing that, I was like, that's cool. And I have to ask about that. And yeah, I'm super excited to know about that. It's always, it's always adds another dimension. Um, you know, we all, yeah, I, I think on the internet, everybody has so. like a niche online. Like you think of like, like I see your post and I think, Oh, white socks. Yeah. Right? And, and, um, you know, different other people I think of in, in different niches, but obviously when someone brings in something different and, and, and you know, it, it kind of reshapes how you view them to a degree. Right. Yeah. No, it is. And also, I mean, this is my bias, but I was like, that is very cool because um, <laughs> I love Prince. So automatically I'm like, hell yeah, Eugene, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> thanks. Thanks. So you could follow that thread. I mean, I, I'm yeah, That's I'll share it. I'll share it. 40, in the show notes. Uh, 40 or so uh, tweets into it. And I'll just keep building it out as I go album by album. Awesome. Yeah, I'll share it too in the show notes because I know there is a, an overlap. There are quite a few Prince fans um, yeah. that I know that are also, I mean, baseball fans in general, but also. Right. Yeah, no, fans. I talked to Keith Law about it, uh, about <laughs> Prince I, uh, fandom. I've, I've exchanged a lot of messages with Joe Sheehan. There are a lot of uh, baseball writers and baseball fans who are, who are also Prince fans. Um, awesome. You know, he did say he had an army that was three million strong. So, um, you know, some of us are hidden more than others. I've met a lot of people with Prince tattoos who asked me why I don't have a Prince tattoo. Um, 
I don't have any tattoos, so. <laughs> not um, yet. <laughs> not yet, right. Yeah, not yet. <laughs> There's still time. Um, but I do have a license plate that says the NPG, which um, has two meanings because I do have a, a Chevy Volt, uh, which was, you know, the, the first, I guess, longer range plug-in electric. So um, it is the new power generation uh, in, in, in reality, as well as uh, Prince fandom. That's awesome. I love it. Cool. Well, Eugene, I don't want to take up any of your, more of your time, but thank you so much for spending some time here and sharing about everything. <laughs> I feel like we could go on forever, but we'll stop it and move on, sadly, because I'll miss it. Well, so, thanks for having me. I really yeah. enjoyed my time. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you everybody for listening in to learn more about Eugene. Check out the show notes. Definitely give him a follow on Twitter because he's awesome. If you can't tell from all of these various topics, he's an expert on. Um, and yeah, share any feedback with us or if you have any questions, share them in the comments or hit up Eugene. Thank you. Thank you.